Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Our Lord, we thank you for these uh, beautiful accounts of these people who you came and you met with and you uh, spoke uh, peace to and uh, that you transformed. God, I pray that this morning as we contemplate this reality of the resurrection of Jesus, that you'd transform us, that you'd, that you'd shape us and change us and send us out to be your agents in the world, having received your peace. God, speak to us now. We're listening. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, some of you might know uh, that one of the great atheists of the 20th century was a man named Anthony Flew. Um, you might not know that his dad was a Methodist minister and um, that Anthony, um, he, he served in World War II for the British Royal Air Force and it was actually out of that, if you were with us on Friday, that you might find this connection interesting. It was out of that experience in World War II that he saw the devastation of death and he saw the extent of evil in the world and he said, there is no God. And he largely spent much of his life, after, after uh, World War II, he went and studied at uh, St. John's College in Oxford, and then he taught philosophy at the University of St. Andrews and uh, University of Reading, and I think another university in, the, in Great Britain, in England. But he spent a lot of his life arguing against the existence of God. In fact, he gave a lecture once, a paper, presented a paper uh, to the Socratic Society in Oxford at the time in which actually C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, was uh, presiding over that society, uh, titled Theology and Falsification. He spent a lot of his time arguing, as part of his, a lot of his life, arguing against the idea of God. And yet in 2004, right near the end of his life, he was 81 years old. He said, I've been wrong all along. And then, when, uh, three years later, when he was 84, he actually uh, wrote, well, co-wrote a book called There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And I'll say this, that he um, sadly actually did not confess Jesus, and the argument that he found so compelling was the idea that the world as it is could never have by chance happened. A lot of DNA research was happening, and he, that kind of turned it for him. There must be a God. But this, he said, the evidence for the resurrection is better 
than any claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. Um, the current Yale professor of finance, James Choi, maybe you read this, recently published an article actually on Yale's website titled, Why I'm a Christian. Children, just do this for a moment. Even though I don't believe in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy. Okay, kids, you, kids, you, can, you can unstop your ears. Um, his entire argument is the veracity of the resurrection. His whole argument is this has to have happened. There's a greater argument for this than he goes on to say all these mathematical proofs that we take as givens. I told you this a few years back, but I want to tell you this again. On, on Saturday, June 17th in 1972, there were five men uh, who were arrested for breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. Uh, there was a security guard, this is an interesting detail, there was a security guard that found that there were these doors that had been taped and so that you could try to lock them and shut them, but they would remain open. And um, so he took off this tape just thinking that's really weird and sketchy, but then he made his way back around near the end of the day and the tape was back on. Of course, he called the police and an unmarked police car arrived. Um, while the person who was supposed to be looking out for these burglars in this office building uh, was distracted by watching TV across the street. So these five men were uh, uh, arrested, and they were um, convicted of conspiracy, burglary, uh, attempted wiretapping. That's all scandalous in and, in and of itself. But the real scandal happened when the president of the United States, who was Richard Nixon, and the committee that was supposed to be helping him get reelected was found to be behind all of it. The president himself, scandal and deception and lies, um, the stuff that makes up great movies. And of course, that event was known as Watergate, right? right? And, and the pre one of these president's men was known as Nixon's hatchet men, and his name was Chuck Colson, who many of you have probably met, or not met, but you've heard of him. Um, so this is, this is what he says. He later gave his life uh, to Jesus, actually reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. But this is what he said about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to, to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. The resurrection has been the thing throughout time again and again and again that have changed hardened atheists, absolute skeptics, the world's greatest doubters into people that have given their lives to Jesus over and over and over again. So the question is, what does Easter make of you? What's the resurrection make of you? I mean, do you think of it as a cover-up? 
an Easter gate? Uh, is it a self kind of producing, self you know, reinforcing just lie that people have bought into again and again and again? A cover up put together by Jesus' disciples to, to dupe those Roman authorities, um, to hoodwink the, the religious leaders. To delude disciples all through these many years. Just some Easter gate. What's Easter do to you? We have three narratives here, and I love that these narratives are all put together because there's a sort of a movement that happens, and there's an individuality that takes place, and there's a movement towards uh, the sorrow and the sadness of a, of a lost loved one. Um, the doubt that God is even real and possibly could do things that you would hope for. And fear. And Easter speaks to all those kinds of things. Let's take these accounts from the end back to the beginning. So first, um, Thomas. What's Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas, right? And I, I just think Thomas actually expect, uh, acts sort of how we would expect him to act. Like, Thomas kind of gets a bad rap, but I think that most of us would actually put ourselves right where Thomas found himself. Um, Thomas doesn't appear that much in the gospel narratives. Of course, you learn a lot about the uh, disciple Peter. James and John get mentioned quite a bit, but Thomas isn't mentioned too terribly much. And when we do find Thomas, we, we look at him and we kind of think he seems rather dour, um, He's somewhat of a difficult disciple. There's only a couple times where he's really mentioned. One in the Gospel of John is in chapter 11. And he more or less says this. Well, if we're going to go with Jesus, let's go. Um, chapter 14, he kind of tells Jesus this. And, actually, and probably you've had, had this experience when you're reading the Gospels and you want to say the same thing that Thomas basically says. He says... Lord, your teaching isn't very clear. And so, so on that first Easter day, um, Thomas isn't with, his, with, the, with the other disciples. It's kind of wild. Like, they're all together, but Thomas isn't among them. Um, maybe he'd, think, think about this, maybe he'd already, he'd already thought, you know, I'm going to throw in the towel. I've been following this guy for three long years of my life. And I was, you know, I don't know that he was there, but think he likely was in that crowd. We shout and crucify him. And maybe he was lining the streets of Jerusalem as Jesus carried his cross. And maybe he saw him hanging on that cross. And Thomas thought, I've had enough. I've been dragged along too long. I've been duped with this grandiose story of God in the flesh and all of that. Forget it. He knew, like you and I do, that dead people stay dead. They do. Um, in the Gospel of John, you know, and this is through the Gospels, there's some people that are really hostile to Jesus. We've seen some of this recently, actually, as we've looked at the Gospel of Luke. They're mostly religious leaders um, plotting his demise. Of course, there's the crowd that cheers his death. Um, there are a lot of people who misunderstand Jesus. Um, you know, people that threw palm branches down as he entered into Jerusalem. And they were saying, Hosanna, and they wanted him to be like a king that could overthrow the Romans. 
Um, and those two kinds of people still, of course, exist today. People that are just hostile, you know, and people that misunderstand. Um, but then there's Thomas, and there's tons of Thomases too, right? And maybe you find yourself like Thomas. What do you do with a God who comes to heal, who comes to forgive, who comes to restore, who comes to liberate, who raises from the dead? I mean, my guess is a lot of, a lot, just doubt. That's too much to take on. That's impossible. God can't do those things if this whole God thing is real anyway. What I'm suggesting to you is that Thomas, though he gets a bad rap, is not too far from us. He's not. He's really not. Um, Some of you know Rowan Williams, the last Archbishop of Canterbury. He's a great writer. He wrote this. Death and the hells of dereliction and abandonment eat people up. Think of Anthony Flew, having come back from World War II. He said, it's enough. Give it up. Rowan Williams says, it exhausts them. It scrapes them out and it brings them to nothing. And I think Thomas had a sense of this, and my guess is many of you do too. Um, Maybe death has come close. Maybe death through sort of loss has come close, broken hearts, broken relationships, bodies that don't work, minds that just are so confused. Um, Sin that persists, just death in the world, and it scrapes you out, it leaves you hollow. And it leaves you absolutely full of doubt. Um, Doubt and resurrection and and life after all of this loss. So it makes us wonder if if Easter is sort of an Easter gate kind of thing, a cover-up. Was it something that was a dream? And that's what Thomas is kind of saying. "This, This can't happen. There's no way. A hallucination. Maybe what some people think is resurrection happened in the hearts of the disciples. James Choi, who I mentioned, this current Yale professor of finance, um, in answering the question of why he's a Christian, said that uh, the disciples had little to nothing to gain from making such a claim. He says, at best, what they would have got out of it is some like status in this tiny, tiny, tiny group of people in the middle of nowhere in you know, modern day Israel. And what they lost was for almost every single one of them, their lives. They were followed and hounded by the religious leaders of their day. They were marginalized. He says there's no way that they would have taken this equation and thought, Yeah, I want to claim the resurrection if it was some sort of good feeling in their heart. He said, no, death had been conquered. It had been conquered. And that changed all of their doubts. And it gave them a confidence and a hope beyond anything else. Um, What we learn here in this story is that Jesus meets Thomas in his doubting. Um, This is actually really beautiful. The Lord doesn't shirk him off. He doesn't make fun of him. He says, come, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Um, C.S. Lewis 
when he was 18, he wrote a letter to a friend of his, and this is what he wrote. You ask me my religious views. You know, I think I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, that is all mythologies, to give them their proper name, are merely man's own invention. Thus, religion, that is to say mythology, grew up. Often, too, great men were regarded as gods after their death, such as Hercules or Odin. This after the death of a Hebrew philosopher, Yeshua, whose name we have corrupted into Jesus. Lewis is writing as an 18-year-old at this point. He became regarded as a god. A cult sprang up, which was afterwards connected with the ancient Hebrew Yahweh worship. And so Christianity came along. One mythology among many. That's what C.S. Lewis wrote when he was 18. 13 years later, he gives an account of this a couple of times. After quite a few conversations with his dear friend J.R.R. Tolkien, he gets on a bus to go into town, and he says that when he got on that bus, he was not a Christian. And when he got off that bus, he was. But he said at night, that night he knelt down to pray. And this is what he says. I gave in and I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in England. He didn't want to give himself to Jesus. No way. For years he had insisted this is just simply mythology. Doubt that just has been so big and somehow Lewis came face to face with this reality that the arguments are so good. Christ really did rise from the dead. Reluctant and dejected as he was, he gave his life to Jesus. So what do you make of the resurrection? What do you make of it? I want to invite you, let Jesus come to you. Consider the arguments, please. Weigh it. Consider it. Let Jesus draw you into a world where, where Good Friday, which we all know, makes its way to Easter Sunday. The cross becomes a flowering tree. All right, let's go to the next little story and the next people. Um, the disciples... Um, I love this. The disciples are locked up somewhere. <laughs> uh, my guess is they are utterly full of fear. Freaking out. I mean, their Lord, who they were with all along, they had prayed in with him just a week prior, had been taken and hung up on a cross, and they saw him die. And they probably thought, that's our fate. We're not sure what to do yet, but let's lock ourselves in this door here. They definitely didn't want people getting in. They didn't want, you know, those people that saw Peter and said, hey, you were with him. And, you know, you were with him. They don't want them knowing where the disciples are. So they lock themselves in, full of fear. And all of a sudden, somebody else is in the room with them. That's scary in itself, but it's Jesus. And he came in and not through a door. And yet they can touch him and he's bodily. And they'd seen him on that cross. And he comes to them and says, peace. 
Peace be with you. I don't know if that would be entirely calming, actually. I don't think it really would, which is probably why Jesus says to them a second time. That's first in verse 19, second time in verse 21. The next thing he says to them is, no, peace be with you. So you have to see that uh, in this full of fear situation, the first thing the resurrection does is it brings peace. It comes into our world, right? this world that we have just reflected on for a moment that's full of death and decay and destruction, deception, despair, despondence, all of these things that these disciples were feeling. Resurrection comes to this world. And it says, this is no longer the order of things. All of this that you think rules the day does not. Peace is possible in the midst of your greatest fear. Yaroslav Pelikan, the great historian that taught at University of Chicago and, at, and also at Yale, said this, if the resurrection didn't happen, then nothing matters. Give in to all the fear. Know that the decay is simply going to take over everything. Let despair overwhelm you. But he says, and if the resurrection did happen, then everything matters. Everything. Jesus comes and he brings peace. And the peace of the resurrection makes something of this, of this group, Right? Just like Jesus coming and inviting Thomas to touch him in his doubt made something new of Thomas, his peace brought something new to these people. And the first thing I want you to see is that it makes them into a sent people. Um, so right after he tells them for the second time, peace be with you, he says this. This is verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Um, he's saying you have to, now that you've received this good news, you have to go and share it. You have to tell others that the Father so loved the world that he gave the Son, and that the Son so loved the world that he suffered and died for it, that he conquered death. He says, go out, which is the perfect thing to say to a group of people that are all locked together in a room. That's the second thing he says to them. You need peace in the midst of your fear, and unlock that door. You're going to be all right. Go out. Death is no real obstacle anymore. I'm sending you. Second thing is that it makes them the presence of God. Um, maybe this is a kind of a funny thing. I thought this was a strange thing that of all the things that Jesus could say to this huddled up fearful group, it makes sense that he says peace. It makes some sense that he says go out. I'm going to send you out there. Unlock that door. But then in, um, in verse 23 it says this, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. What? <laughs> why, why would you say that to your disciples in this time? Why in the world, of all, th all the things you could say? I mean, the resurrection's happened. You know, it's changed who they are. They're ascent people now. And this. Well, I... I, 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 I Skipped over something that he also said, right? Um, verse 22, and when he'd said this, 
He breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And what that means is God is with you. And he's in you. And you're the very presence of God in a world that thinks that death and decay and despair are the only way of the world. But I am with you. The risen Christ through the gift of the Spirit is with you. And so you can go out of this world where everybody's looking and saying, war, school shootings, neighbors that are shouting at each other, marriages that are falling apart, and you can say there is a hope beyond all of this. What's it look like? Um, Duke Kwan, uh, a fellow PCA pastor in D.C., says this, How's a Christian prove this tomb is still empty the day after Easter? They dare to love difficult neighbors, repent for wrongs a little more quickly and a little less defensively, Return to work with the fresh sense of purpose and mission. Recommit to praying for that impossible situation. Quietly persevere in long-term battle with depression. Approach spouse and children and roommates with fresh wonder, fresh affection, fresh hope. Risk serving where nobody else wants to go. Fleming Rutledge, in her masterful work, The Crucifixion, says... It cannot be said too often enough, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we would have never heard of him. We would have never heard of him. But the disciples became the sent ones who had the very presence of God. They certainly would not have gone to their death for some figment of their imagination, but instead what happens is we, 2,000 years later, are gathering together and saying, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. So what did the resurrection make of them? Change them from a fearful people into a hopeful people, into a huddled people to a sent people. Let's consider the, the first story now of Mary Magdalene. What does he do with Mary? So Mary comes to the tomb that first Easter morning, and she stoops down, and, and she looks in, and Jesus isn't there. Uh, again, she knows, just like you know, that dead people stay dead. Um, sorry, what did I do here? <clears throat> um, and, uh, and what she does is she weeps. Because what she's thinking is dead people are dead. And Jesus' body, which I came to care for, isn't here. This body that even though he is dead, I still care about and want to, want to tend to. And so she's weeping and she's crying bitterly at the loss of her dear friend and whatever has happened. Um, and again, I imagine that if, you, that if you think about this, you can put yourself in Mary's place. I would guarantee that you've had places or times of deep loss. A loss that's overwhelming. Um, a loss of a home or a husband, um, children, maybe just your dignity or a marriage. or You know, there's so many losses that we could list that the sorrow has just overwhelmed us. And we just weep and we weep. 
And I, I sort of want you to sit there um, because tears and weeping seem to have their own timetable. You know that, right? You just can't stop whenever you want to. Like, sorrow doesn't just go away. Um, you can't really be rushed. Um, and then she wonders to this angel that's there, where have they taken my Lord? Um, a supernatural being, and she's still utterly full of sorrow. Um, her dreams and her life have changed and been crushed, and she's weeping and she's wondering because she knows dead people stay dead. And it's in that time, actually, this is a really beautiful detail that I hope you can hear, is that the angel doesn't respond to her. Uh, the angel doesn't come to her. Instead, who comes to her? Jesus comes to her. She's wondering to somebody else, and yet Jesus shows up. He says, well, it says that he, it seems as though he's still far off. And Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It says, supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She's utterly convinced that death is the end. Because dead people have always stayed dead. And the turn happens when Jesus himself speaks her name. Which is to say, he sees exactly where she is, who she is, what she's gone through, what tears she's wept, all of it. He sees all of the reasons why she would believe that resurrection doesn't happen, there's no hope in this world, your greatest losses have come about. He sees all of it. And the turn happens in her when he speaks her name. Mary. I'm telling you, the same thing happens today. It does. The change happens when Jesus says, David, Peter, Conrad. That's when the turn happens. When you know that the resurrection isn't just some far off distant thing, but it affects you today now. It changes your life today now. It gives you hope in the midst of your overwhelming sorrow. It overcomes your deepest fears. It changes your long-held doubts. These are the things that we see in the resurrection accounts. Easter happens, but what we see here is Easter makes something of them. For countless people the world over and throughout time, and I want you to think of some of these people. Alice Cooper. Anthony Flew. Salvador Dali. C.S. Lewis. James Choi. Chuck Colson. Um, 
Francis Collins, the, uh, who used to be the director of the National Institute of Health and who did the Human Genome Project, countless people throughout history have come face to face with the reality of the resurrection, have had Jesus call out their name, and it has entirely changed their life. And I want you to think today, what does Easter make of you? Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.